Many of our listeners are aware that the reason the AI and industry podcast and techemergence.com at large even exist is because I grew and sold a multi-million dollar e-commerce business to fund this little venture. And I can speak from firsthand experience that Amazon certainly sets the tone of expectation for e-commerce stores. In the niche in the industry that we were in, almost everybody who would have feedback about shipping, feedback about packaging would in some way, shape, or form reference Amazon, and generally these are things that they were better than us at. This is not just the case for delivery, of course. The big tech giants tend to set the stage in a lot of different domains and set public expectation to kind of rise the aggregate tide of the consumer experience. A website experience is no different. I'll wager to guess that the last time you were on YouTube was a different experience than the time before that than the time before that. Of course, we can say the same with Facebook, which naturally has a different feed. But as it turns out, many of these tech giants alter their experience user per user in a real-time iterative fashion, and this is how they create these sticky experiences and potentially how they beat out their competitors. This week on the AI and Industry Podcast, we have Adam Spector, who is co-founder of LiftIgniter. LiftIgniter, originally two of the co-founders, one of the co-founders of the company, had spun out of one of Google's labs, which was working on modulating website experiences per users. Now they offer that as a service to other businesses. So Adam in this episode tells us a little bit about what the big guys are doing to customize their website experiences, everybody from Amazon to Google and beyond, what data they're using, what information they're drinking in to continuously alter the experience for the user and for the customer, and potentially what industries and sectors might be impacted by this aggregate trend as it sort of rolls forward. Uh, whose content, what kind of businesses might need a website that sort of adjusts to its users in the near term versus in the long term. Certainly a trend that we see growing, certainly in its nascent form for most smaller, even medium-sized companies, but definitely an important trend for business leaders to kind of tune into in terms of what their own website experience is like. If you run a business or work in a business where the user experience in the digital channel is doggone pivotal to your value proposition, to you maintaining your users, to you converting your potential prospects, then this should be a more than useful episode. If you guys enjoy this one, feel free to certainly leave us a review on iTunes. The feedback that I've gotten in iTunes and in just personal messages on LinkedIn is always what helps me determine who are going to be our next best guests, what kind of topics and themes might be useful. So certainly share the love there. But otherwise, without further ado, this is Adam Spector with LiftIgniter on AI and Industry. So first things first, Adam, I wanted to dive into this whole concept of kind of the modular web, the customizable web, this this sort of internet that responds to the user. This is a trend that obviously you folks are working with a number of companies on. It's also something that, from the best of my knowledge, you sort of gleaned from what some of the internet giants are already doing. I think the audience would be very interested to get up to speed on how are people like Google or companies like Google and, and the other tech giants already kind of adjusting the web experience per user? It's a great question, Dan. And the way you really have to think about it is their initial goal, and frankly, it should be every website's goal and every digital experience's goal, right? Website or app is to create the best user experience possible. What is a great user experience? Well, a great user experience to most people today is one that gives them the answer to their question in as short a time period as possible, right? That means you're getting what you want with a minimum amount of effort in. Humans are generally probably lazy and, and also have ADD. And we've kind of been trained to do that. That's so true. we want to get the right answer as fast as possible. 
And that's what we've trained for. And, and remember, answer can differ, right? If you're on, obviously, Google search, you want a direct answer to your question. And Google's trained us to not even go past the first page of Google search results, right? Because you expect to get the right answer so right away, basically. Yep. On social sites, you're there not to get an answer, but you're there to be entertained, in a sense. So goal is to give you the best entertainment possible, because that's why you're on that site. So the goal is really to get the best user experience. And that's where these companies started, right? So we came out of Google's machine learning research group. And the core goal there, when the first kind of version of real world, real time per impression personalization was created, which my co-founder helped build, their goal was really simple. How do we create the best user experience? And they realized that the way to do that is one where the user experience is dynamic in the experience updates in real time for every single user. So it's really this modular adjustable web is really about providing the users the best possible experience. And if you do that, that's a win for your users. It's a win for your site. It's a win for your business. Yeah, and it clearly makes sense. I mean, the sort of well-known that you know Google was, by a pretty significant margin, just a better search engine than what else was out there. People started using them as kind of their gateway into the internet at large. And then they are where they are today. Clearly, that's paid off for them. Continuing to stay ahead of that curve makes sense. There's only very limited examples that I'm uh, super familiar with here, Adam. And I know what, what you folks are studying and where the internet is going is much farther beyond this. But we look at, you know, if I type in coffee near me or something, Google, of course, will, <laughs> yep. will figure out where I am. They're not going to show every coffee shop in the U.S. or in the world. They're going to show coffee shops in Hayes Valley, San Francisco. That's relatively kind of modest little customization there. They might also, you know, if I Google a lot of things about, let's say, machine learning and finance, I'm like constantly looking at kind of the finance industry at large. They may sort of help me with suggested searches that are more related to those things already when I start typing in initial phrases, if they realize like that this is quite likely going to be one of their commonly typed in financial searches, maybe they'll suggest that a little bit earlier on. These are things sort of tailored to my previous behavior. What are some other examples of things that, you know, maybe we'll just start with Google, that Google does to tweak and adjust for the best possible user experience beyond maybe what people are familiar with? Yeah, absolutely. The fact is right now, actually, Google and frankly, all the major players in the world are giving you a real-time personalized experience. You just don't know it, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, gosh, I really like this service. So I'll give you a really easy example nice. um, of that, right? H have you spent a decent amount of time in your life watching videos on YouTube? I sure have. <laughs> I would imagine we all have. I, um, I, sure I know have. lots of people who say they're addicted to watching stuff on YouTube. They can't stop because they keep finding new great content and great videos to watch. So people sort of think, oh, I go do that on, on YouTube. I watch all these videos because YouTube has the most videos in the world. And the truth is actually, you spend all that time watching videos on YouTube because YouTube is better at targeting you and understanding your interests and preferences at that moment in time than anybody else. And I'll give you a counterexample to that, right? Or not a counterexample, another example of that same thing, but with a much smaller inventory. So YouTube does have, obviously, it probably does have the largest video inventory in the world. Oh, yeah. But people still are addicted to it and love it because, of course, you can't watch all the videos on YouTube. It would be impossible. You don't have enough time for that, nor would you be interested to do so. So they have to do a great job targeting, figuring out which video is right for you at that moment in time, right? Are you in the mood for a happy video or a sad video? Are you in the mood for a short video or a long video? All those sorts of things, they can tailor those to your needs and interests. They've won you as a customer and you won't spend time going anywhere else to get your video fixed. On the flip side, Another one who also does fantastic targeting but has a much smaller inventory of videos is Netflix, right? So Netflix 
a few years ago, famously had their Netflix challenge. Their job was to figure out how can we improve our recommendation? And they've advanced massively since then. And, and part of why people don't really recognize a huge part of why Netflix has won is because they've convinced you, despite having a very small, especially in comparison, let's say to YouTube, a very small number of videos that are options to watch. They've convinced you that they have videos you'll be interested in, even if you've never heard of the actors or anything else. And of course, Netflix's stock is on a tear and they're winning more and more time of consumers' time. Yep. So both of them have basically said, like, let's create a personalized real-time experience that is updating and learning that is just perfect for you. And if you do that, the user gets what they want and the user wins. And the yeah. company wins, of course, too. Big time. Yeah, Netflix is, is clearly doing quite well for yeah, themselves. Clearly. YouTube, I, I remember the golden days before uh, advertisements on YouTube, but you know, <sighs> I, I can't knock them. Uh, Way back. But yeah, clearly, clearly they're winning as well because I'll sit through something for 30 seconds, which is like, hyper egregious, but I'll totally do it. I mean, if it's, if the video is worthwhile, if it's a talk I want to listen to, I'll, I'll totally sit there for 30 seconds. People are somewhat, I think familiar with like on, on YouTube, for example, there's some channels that I'm subscribed to, you know, whether it be business talks at the Stanford school or some particular academic who I like, or whatever the case may be. Clearly those things are maybe more likely to show up in my feed, but I think there's also a lot of this sort of not just historical behavior, but maybe whatever I'm kind of clicking on and looking at right then. And I think this is maybe, I think, more challenging for people to imagine. It, it seems easy enough, like, if you look at my entire Netflix history to kind of take a good guess at what the next thing might be to suggest to me. But if that night I'm just on a tear watching romantic comedies, which by the way, Adam, has never happened. And, <laughs> oh, come and, on, Dan, and, don't lie. And, don't lis lie. and listeners to this podcast has never happened. Imagine me working. <laughs> but let's just say I'm just on a rom-com. I don't have Netflix. But let's say I, I jack somebody else's Netflix and I'm on a, a rom-com tear one night. They may not suggest what my historical behavior would imply. They may suggest what it seems like I'm in the mood for, what it seems like I'd be most hungry for now. And I think this is a little bit more of what you folks are working on, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly right. What Netflix does and what YouTube does, and same thing with Facebook and Amazon and Google search, like literally all the big guys, what they're doing is recognizing that you are changing and in flux at every moment in time, right? So if you're in the mood for rom-com right now, tonight, they should give you rom-com. But just because you're in the mood for rom-com tonight has no relevance to the fact that you might be, or it has minimal relevance, I should say. Yep minimal relevance to the fact that you will be interested in rom-com tomorrow, right? Maybe tomorrow you want to watch sci-fi movies, right? And your interests are changing and ever in flux because you're being influenced. And this is a key thing, right? You're constantly being influenced by external factors. And you're even being influenced by factors within the sites themselves. So on Netflix, if you watch a rom-com, and then that rom-com that you just watched, will give them some signal of other videos you might want to watch next. And basically, because you were influenced by what you just heard, I'll give you a more personalized example, right? What I just said to you about how they are making real-time decisions, essentially based on your actions and activities, my statement, in fact, will change, most likely, might change the question you ask me next, right? You are responding to me in real time and understanding yes, what I'm yes, saying, yes. and my answers to you are influencing your next questions. This is called a dynamic conversation that humans are great at doing. However, where humans fail is they're unable to do dynamic conversations at scale. 
right? So in other words, if there are 10 Dans all asking me questions right now at the same time, I would break down completely, right? Yep. I can't answer 10 people at once. It just, I can't do it. Yep. I can only answer one person, but if I can answer that one person really quickly, I give you a response that is hopefully, hopefully intelligent, right? And I do it really quick, you know, in a quick way to have a dynamic, valuable conversation for both of us. What Google and Netflix have figured out is an ability to essentially create these dynamic conversations between each user at scale across their site. So every click, every action, every rom-com that you watch is fed into their algorithms. And then they're constantly updating those models to give you a response immediately that is tailored to you, just like you and I are having that conversation. Yeah, and that's, man, that's wild to think about because it's that seems very challenging. But at the same time, it seems so necessary because, you know, I'm sure that there are people with a Netflix subscription who, for the most part, are just going to watch Jackie Chan movies. But, you know, when they have, uh, you know, a date over, then they might flip to rom-com mode for that night. And I think the these companies probably have to adjust to that, you know, that there's the YouTube guy who's like using it at work and he does these things. And then on the weekend when he has his friends over, they like to watch these kind of videos to like reminisce or something. And it's like, it's like a different mental mode. And YouTube is not reaching out through the screen and like drinking in the emotions and context of this person, but they have to, I guess, take into account that that context could have changed and then begin modularly altering what this person is seeing based on what it seems like the mood is, what it seems like the current behavior pattern is. And tell me if I'm wrong here, Adam. And sorry, listeners, I'm a little bit under the weather today, but not not too bad. It seems like there's two dynamics at play. There is the long ball behavioral tracking element, you know, and this has been going on since, you know, L.L. Bean and the catalog sales folks where they have a lot of database information and they do database marketing where they know you're a male, they know where you live, they know what you're interested in, they know what you've bought in the past, they know what you've done in the past. Okay, easy enough. This is sort of historical demographics and behavior. Then there's this idea of real-time behavior, whether that's, you know, clicking, view time, whatever. I'm kind of mentally putting those in two different buckets there. Is it safe to say that sort of they're of the same ilk, but really they are two different dynamics of customization that are going on at the same time? It is safe to say they're of the same ilk. However, what the right way to put it in some ways, not to say that you're wrong, but the oh, better no, way to put it. it is what using cohorts or using segments, right? What you just described, right? Male versus female, 25 to 35 year olds, things like that is the legacy, an old way of doing targeting, of quote unquote, personalizing the experience, yep. right? Where you might have a human in the background who says, okay, we think all car videos should be targeted to men because more men like car videos than women. Well, that might be true as an overall whole across the country, right? But it's not true on a specific individual level. And frankly, even that decision, the fact that someone might assume that cars videos are what men might like more, is also based on the human's biases themselves. Yep. So a far better way of doing it, which gets rid of the bias to a large extent, and is far better at giving users exactly what they want instead of putting them into these specific buckets, is by saying, let's figure out on an individual per impression basis, what that person wants right now, right? As you said, you know, you might want to watch certain types of videos during the week, then you might want to watch on the weekends. And you're not going to go tell Netflix, hey, I've totally changed my opinion of what I want. What you do instead is you log on to Netflix or you log on to YouTube and you start looking at videos. Yep. And very quickly, they need to update their models to give you the videos that you want. 
you don't explicitly say what you want. And frankly, part of the time, you might not even know what you want, right? If you think about your own self, when you go on Netflix or on YouTube, do you know what videos you want to watch? Sometimes you might know it very specifically, but you probably don't know exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, I bet if you think about it, you might start in point A and you think you'll go to point B, but you end up at point X, right? Without even knowing it because you don't quite know what you're looking for or where you're going. So you end up in that direction and that's the, the way you go with things. So it's just super different. Yeah, it's curious to point that out. It's We're not necessarily bringing people like a homing missile to exactly where they want to go. There's like this dynamic kind of exploring open-endedness to it that seems like there's kind of a lot of opportunity there, obviously, for YouTube to keep you around for another three videos before you leave, if they can kind of meander you to things that are genuinely of your interest. And I do want to cover before we're off what this sort of means and implies for the web at large and maybe for business leaders who you know have websites. But right before I do, just to kind of encapsulate the notes we've been riffing on thus far, Adam, this information about what someone's doing in real time. So they, they show up on whatever the website is, they click on this thing, they hang out on the site for 30 seconds, they move their mouse over something else, but they don't click it. Then they move it to something else and they do click that. All these various little sub factors, I take it that the way a website would consistently present information that would keep somebody around and give someone the best possible experience, generally, I mean, time on page or pages viewed or items bought, or there's going to be some metric that we're optimizing here for. But hypothetically, my guess is we're looking at behavior patterns of maybe the other thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of users and saying, you know, people who hover over these things and click on these things and stay on this site, we've exposed these kinds of groups to all these different various and sundry sort of experiences. And here tend to be the experiences that this type of person with this type of behavior, what has generally kept them around for the longest span of time. This seems to be the machine mm -hmm. learning and the pattern recognition element of it. Is that safe to say that all these micro behaviors, this is not historical stuff. This is real time very, very quick information that in order to serve one user best, we really do need kind of a historical record and a historical set of tests as to what has previously driven results for similar users. Is this safe to assume? It is safe to assume, but not the amount of historical data or information that you might expect. So literally, when you're talking about historical information, it might be historical from the past 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah stuff yeah. that people are doing, right? Like, uh, you know, think about using the Netflix example again, when Netflix puts a new video up onto Netflix, right? They might have some idea of what type of people are going to watch it. And they certainly can guess people they should recommend it to. But the simple fact is they're going to start testing immediately. Yeah. Right. The moment it shows up in the site, they're going to start showing it to different groups of people. And then they're going to start learning from whether people engage with that content, they watch the content and what they do, and then keep updating and updating and updating and targeting even better and better and better. As every single second goes by and people take different actions watching those videos, they keep updating their models. And to compare that, once again, going back to kind of what other people are doing, right? To compare that to what most other websites or apps do today, they don't update their information basically at all unless they have like their marketing team or if someone on the technical team go in to make some changes and say, oh, you know, this content doesn't seem to be performing well. We should maybe have it target someone else. Whereas Netflix and Google and these guys, they're making changes in milliseconds that are constantly updating based on machine learning and artificial intelligence that are literally learning from users and updating in real time to improve the models and give people more of what they want. And going back to the theme of like, 
the whole goal is to give people the best user experience possible. Yeah. Get them to watch more video, get them to buy more of your products. These systems automatically update and learn from your users in real time to accomplish that goal. So Netflix, just to, I'm going to try to paint one example, then we'll move right on. But I, I do appreciate throwing that color on it, Adam. One possible example might be Netflix comes out with a new movie or they release a new movie and they roll it out across a whole bunch of different subsegments, and they display it and expose it in a whole bunch of different ways. They start to see who's biting and not just who's biting, but who's biting and then sticking around. And then not just who's biting and sticking around, but who's biting, sticking around. And then what do they want to watch right after that to stay engaged with Netflix? And Netflix might know automatically after a certain amount of rollout, okay, great. When this entire kind of group of folks logs in, we might be more likely to expose it to them because this happens to be the people that are responding best. And of the people who, you know, rewind this part 10 times because they think it's humorous, it's likely that we're going to want to show them this movie once this one's over. And they just learned that like 40 seconds ago or 30 minutes ago or whatever the case may be, but they're going to adjust that to who might like it the most and how they might want to expose it. And that that's kind of an ongoing process at these sites. Is this an okay way to encapsulate what you were saying? Yeah, that's totally a good way to encapsulate it. And the core goal, once again, is just look, it is a dynamic, real-time experience on sites. All the major big guys are doing this. And if you're building a website today, whether it's an e-commerce, media, enterprise B2B, and you have any sort of content on it, obviously like items to buy or videos or articles or how-tos or you name it, it should be utterly personalized to that user because people don't have the time and they don't have the energy to spend a lot of time looking for items. They've been trained by Netflix. They've been trained by Google. They want the right answer right away. And if they don't find it, they will leave your site and go somewhere else. Yep. There's no doubt about that. And it seems as though, you know, obviously this is the business that you're in. You know, when you look ahead in the next, let's say, you know, five years, 10 years to what the internet, even three years, whatever, to what the internet might look like. My guess is there's going to be some businesses and sectors, and this will be the point that we wrap up on, but I think this is very interesting to kind of educate the folks tuned in. There's going to be some businesses and sectors that maybe really use this very, very quickly, and, and this becomes you know a norm almost across the board. The immediate thoughts that I have are sites with a tremendous volume of traffic are maybe a little bit more poised. Maybe they're not the only ones, but there's certainly some baseline threshold of how much engagement you have before you can start modulating a, a user's experience in real time. You know, 200 visitors a day might not cut the mustard. My guess is this might have to be sites that are a little bit more robust, but you you might have a different opinion. You're, you know, working with various and sundry companies from e-commerce and media and whatnot to sort of implement this today. If you look ahead in, in the relative short term, who are going to be the businesses that are more or less forced to adjust their content, their material, their experience in real time to users? Who are the people that are most likely, or what are the industries rather, that are most likely to adopt this in the, in the more near term, in your opinion? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, well, as you correctly said, right, the people who have media guys are likely to adopt it, e-commerce, frankly, anyone, even enterprise B2B, right? We have some large enterprise B2B customers who are also using it because in the end, Everyone's creating content. And that content, as I said, can be defined as articles, videos, images, items to buy, you name it. This is being created right now. And the fact is, if you've built a website to attract users to buy your products or spend time looking at your product or your ad supported, let's say, if you've done that, then you should be doing personalization as part of your key elements for building in that site. To me, I mean, I know I'm biased. Yes, yes, yes. you, You would be insane to build a site today that didn't contemplate using machine learning and artificial intelligence 
to help target those users, right? Why would you build a great experience with fantastic content? And if people can't find it, what's the point? Why did you do it in the first place? No, no, the grand trend, of course, yes, you, you are biased. I think the listeners know we, we get a lot of opinions on the show because you know folks like yourself are dedicating their lives to specific applications and their livelihoods to specific applications. So yes, of course. However, you know, I mean, in fairness and frankness, I'm reasonably convinced that this notion of kind of modular experiences will be pushed farther and farther down, not just from the big guys, but to medium-sized businesses and other companies who really have to do this to stay ahead and to have any kind of a comparable user experience. To push, to kind of shove you a little bit over the edge here, it sounds like you're on the same page with me that volume of traffic is some degree of a factor here. The more probably the better. You know, if, if you're completely through the floor in terms of traffic, then maybe this isn't like a near-term consideration. I mean, do, do you see e-commerce as sort of more picking this up? Do you see media? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of like, so, if you're a betting man and you have to guess, this sector is most likely to adopt this at mass scale. Of course, everybody can benefit. But if this sector is most likely to garner this in a mass scale in the next three years, you know, where, where would you put your chips? Yeah, you know, it's a debate we have all the time, actually. Around I know, that. you have to be thinking about this, right? This is your future. Oh, all the time. Yeah, all the time. And frankly, every one of the industries that you just mentioned are all people that can make good use of it. So to also clarify something, right? It's not about the amount of traffic or even about the amount of content that you have. Rather, it's about the value of an individual on your site, right? How much money do you make from an individual being on your site? Now, a media site makes a lot of money based on someone coming to their site and looking at lots of pages, right? Because they want you to see lots of lots of their content and make advertising dollars from it. However, e-commerce, on the other hand, they want people to show up and convert. So you know, if you're only selling t-shirts, you know, then you need to have a lot of people convert on a, or buy a lot of t-shirts to make money on it. If you're selling on the other hand, you know, diamonds or something, you don't need to have a lot of people convert. You just need a few conversions. But every single one of those conversion numbers that go up because people find the right diamond is massively valuable for you. And so there's no perfect answer to your question because frankly, I truly believe that every single digital property in the next five years will either have machine learning personalization built into it, because once again, personalization equals better user experience, and the only way to personalize at scale is via machine learning. Yep. And every single digital property in the next five years will either have this built in, or they simply will cease to exist. You will end up losing your traffic, you will lose your users, and no matter how much advertising dollars you throw at Google SEO in search terms, people will show up to your site, they won't find exactly what they want, and they will bounce off and go to somewhere else that gives it to them. So this will be a required element of every digital property in the relative near term. Got it. Again, it sounds like there's even within the office debates, there's no consensus sort of gleaned forth. I think we're clearly in, in kind of the, the phase where there's folks pioneering this domain. I think it is quite inevitable that this will become more and more a part of the web. I'm interested to see where this rolls forth. And I'm really glad that we got to dig into some insights on what this might look like in the future and also how it works. So Adam, thanks so much for sharing some of your insights and joining us here on AI and Industry. Dan, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Feel free to pop me any other questions at any time. Anyone else listening, feel free to do the same. We're always here. Cool, man.
That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. 